Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast devoted to exploring the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Lindsay Stern. And I'm Viveka Morris. Come here. I'm sorry. What corn? On the tray, how many orange wool? How many orange wool? Three. Very good boy. Okay, we'll get you that nut. What you just heard were human words spoken by a bird with the brain the size of a shelled walnut. He was raised by our guest, Dr. Irene Pepperberg, whom Nova called a rebel scientist. In 1977, after finishing her doctorate in theoretical chemistry at Harvard, Dr. Pepperberg purchased this then one-year-old African gray parrot at a pet shop and named him Alex, an acronym for avian language experiment. At the time, birds were not considered smart, but Dr. Pepperberg believed otherwise. For the next 30 years, she and Alex forged a deep bond as each other's closest companions and revolutionized how scientists and the public understand what it means to be bird-brained. Gray parrots may have walnut-sized brains, but Alex and Dr. Pepperberg showed that those brains have many capabilities long thought to be unique to primates, including the ability to speak and understand a human tongue. This feat is all the more remarkable, considering that Alex's and Irene's last common ancestor was a dinosaur that lived over 300 million years ago. With the extraordinary force of vision, perseverance, and bravery of Dr. Pepperberg, Alex learned to comprehend numbers and to do basic arithmetic, to identify colors, sizes, and shapes, to understand analogies and concepts such as same, different, and zero, and to know over 150 English words, which he used to help train and sometimes chastise other birds in the lab, telling them, you're wrong, and speak clearly. Alex even coined several words of his own, combining words he already knew when presented with a unique object, such as bannery for an apple after knowing the word for cherry and banana, and yummy bread for birthday cake after being given one for the first time. And Alex did it all with unforgettable charisma and often hilarious personality until he passed away prematurely in 2007 at age 31 with the status of an international celebrity. As the ethologist Franz Duvall wrote, together with his tutor, Dr. Irene Pepperberg, Alex systematically destroyed the notion, the way he destroyed so many things, that all birds can do is mimic human language. Our notion of what a bird is has forever been changed. Today, Dr. Pepperberg continues her work studying how birds think and communicate at Harvard. She also leads the Alex Foundation, which aims to improve the lives of parrots worldwide by supporting research, encouraging responsible ownership, and advocating for their conservation in the wild. She is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Alex and Me, which is a loving remembrance of her time with Alex, The Alex Studies, which describes over 20 years of peer-reviewed experiments on gray parrots, and the co-author of Animal Cognition in Nature, as well as many scientific papers. Dr. Irene Pepperberg, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. Thank you so much for having me here. To start off, we were wondering if you could tell us some about your childhood and where your early interest in birds came from. Well, I grew up in Brooklyn, but in this little apartment above a store, and there were no other children to play with. There was nobody around, basically, most of the day. My father was getting his degree in 
education at NYU and was commuting back and forth every day. He was also teaching school full-time in Brooklyn, and he was taking care of his mother, who was quite ill. So there were many days when he'd just kiss me good morning and I wouldn't see him till the next morning. My mom would have been great in my generation. She wanted a career. She did not want to have children. She did not want to have particularly a child like myself, who was really, you know, as one would say, a smart ass, a smart aleck. <laughs> and I really had no children to play with or any other really interactions all day until um, my dad got me this little budgerigar, a little green parakeet, the ones that you would get at Woolworths for a few dollars. And this bird became my companion. And I kind of joked that this was the only creature that interacted with me most of the days. And I think I imprinted on these, this little bird. And uh, he was the first of many of these birds that I had throughout my childhood. So I think that's why I became interested in birds for the rest of my life. And then you ended up getting your doctorate in chemistry. So how did that passion kind of find its way back into your life? Well, I was very good in science, and I turned out to be really good in chemistry. My high school chemistry teacher was really, really supportive and, you know, kept saying things like, oh, Marie Curie, you know, women, you can do this. And again, that was in the 60s, which, you know, nobody was was really helping women in science at that point. It was an, an anomaly, and having somebody support me was great. And so I pursued this interest in chemistry, and I went from high school to MIT, where there was no chance of learning anything about animal behavior because it didn't exist in, at MIT at that point. Later on, they did have courses, but not when I was there. Biology was slice and dice, and I continued on very happily in chemistry at that point. And then I went to Harvard Graduate School in chemistry, theoretical chemistry, and that's when things started getting dicey because that was the first time I started hitting up against a lot of sexism in the field. I started realizing that what I was doing, which was basically mathematically modeling chemical reactions and trying to determine structures through mathematical modeling, basically for the computer work, um, I kept looking at it thinking, hmm, someday a computer is going to do this thing in you know seven minutes instead of the seven years it's taking me. Now it's probably literally seven nanoseconds, but you know those mm -hmm. those were the days, and I became very discouraged and very disheartened. I didn't like what I was doing. I didn't find it interesting, and over the while I was in my in doing my doctoral work, a very weird, interesting thing happened. Um, there was apartment fires in our area, and we were the fifth of five apartment fires. By the time the basic fire engines and whatever came, our place was rubble. And we ended up, my husband and I, ended up moving into a beautiful, large, gorgeous home out in the suburbs, working as au pairs for my husband's postdoctoral advisor. And we didn't do that much, you know, childcare per se, but every once in a while, John had to stay late for faculty meetings, and we took care of the kids. And they, of course, wanted to watch television. And one of the things that was on the approved list, because you know they weren't allowed to watch any kind of television, was Nova. That was the first year of Nova. And that's when I started finding out that people could be scientists and study animal behavior. And there was this wonderful show on the signing chimps. There was another one on dolphin intelligence. And the critical one for me, Why Do Birds Sing? Explaining how birds learn their songs, and they use them to communicate with one another. 
And I went, oh my, I could be a scientist. I could still be a scientist and reignite this love I had of, of birds. And that was the beginning. I started talking to the people at Harvard in the biology department and the Museum of Comparative Zoology. And basically in the psychology department, they all said, look, you can sit in on our courses. Just don't make us grade your papers. No <laughs> extra work for us, but you can sit out on the courses. So the last few years of my doctorate, I spent 40 hours a week in lab you know, optimizing boron boron internuclear distances and 40 hours a week in the libraries and sitting in on courses and seminars learning about child language acquisition and bird behavior and essentially all the biology that I had never had for all the other years. So it was pretty intense. And at that time um, in 1977, certainly the general publics, but even scientists' understanding of bird brain compared to today was very rudimentary. Right, and that the, that the bird brained at the time was, as, as we alluded to in the introduction, really an insult. Um, and so I'm curious if you could describe both the state of the field of bird intelligence at that time and then also how you went about going and finding Alex and, and meeting him for the first time. Well, as, I, as you said, people did not think birds were smart at all. The only birds that were being studied with any regularity at that point were pigeons. It turns out, actually, pigeons are really quite smart now that people know to look for what they can do. But at that time, they were considered quite stupid. They were at the bottom of the heap. You know, if you if you couldn't afford, you know, chimpanzees or monkeys or even mice and rats, you know, you studied a pigeon. Um, nobody understood their brains, although there were papers written from the 1900s in German, talking about the interesting bits and pieces of the bird brain that might be comparable to our cerebral cortex, but they were written in German, so hmm. none of my colleagues were reading them. And if you looked at a bird brain, it just looked like a blob of protoplasm. There were no sulci and gyri and nothing that looked anything at all like a primate brain. So it was not surprising that people thought they were pretty stupid. Uh, one. Uh, the one study that had tried to establish two-way communication with, with birds in the 50s by O.H. Um, Maurer had failed miserably. He used standard operant conditioning techniques, and the birds learned nothing. So this idea of, of parrots in particular as mindless mimics <clears throat> was really, really enhanced and really established. And yet I had had this budgie as a child, and it had done all these kind of cool, interesting things with me. It would play with me. It would seem to understand what we were doing. And so I dug up all these old papers, and I started reading about different things about encephalization quotas and a lot of things that I really had trouble understanding without any background, but started realizing that there was something there, and maybe, maybe this would work. And I talked to some of the people in neurobiology at that point, they were just beginning to start studying the avian brain in the kind of detail that I needed. And people like Harvey Carton kept telling me, you know, I think you got something there. This is, this is, this is possible. So when I had the chance, um, my then-husband and I, we moved to Purdue where he got his first faculty position. And I, I had to say I conned them, but I basically did pull the sword of a con and got permission to put in a grant proposal to study avian communication and cognition, and it's when I needed a gray parrot. And so we went around to a lot of different pet stores trying to find one birds that were not imported because I didn't want a bird that had been imported that had a fear of people because of the horrible conditions under which importing 
you know, cause, importation caused, and finally found a pet store in the Chicago area that had a cage full of, you know, about a dozen gray parrots at that point, and I couldn't get Alex at that stage, but I figured, okay, this is good, and I went back a few months later. They now had, you know, eight or nine gray parrots, and they were all domestically raised, and so I then, you know, had the money, I had the space, and I bought Alex, and so our first first interaction was not the best. A fellow in the stores, you know, said, which one do you want? And I said, well, you pick it out for me, because I didn't want anybody to say there was anything special about the bird I chose. So he gets this big butterfly net, and he grabs a bird, flips it on its back, clips its toes, its beak, its wings, shoves it in a box and says, here, give me $600, and it's yours. Oh, boy. Yep. Wow. And can you give us a sense of what Alex physically looked like? Alex was about, weighed about a pound. He was all different shades of gray, from very dark to, to light. His wings were very dark gray. His body was a light silvery gray, bright red tail, dark gray beak, and these very intelligent looking eyes that had a yellow, yellow um, iris and a black pupil. And the, in terms of length, from basically the tip of his head to the tip of his tail was about 12 inches. So it's worth pointing out there in the story, too, for any listeners who aren't familiar with it beyond this conversation, that Alex and probably the other birds who were in the cage with him did, could easily have gone on to spend the rest of his life in a small cage in the basement somewhere, that he was just, you know, just another um, just another bird, not, not necessarily a special one, per se, which makes, which makes it all the more poignant in the story. So, so you get Alex, and he's, you know, 12, 12 inches from top to bottom, um, and he's just gone through this uh, very difficult wrangling process at the pet store. And then you bring him home, and, and you're going to train him. And you're using these techniques that you've studied and developed that have been used with apes to some degree, but have never been used, to my knowledge, at least with birds before. And they're really very radical in the field. And so I'm wondering, can you explain um, what your training method was with Alex and the first, some of the first words that you, that you were able to teach him? Right. Well, actually, the technique we use, the model rival technique, had never been used with apes at that point. It had only been used with gray parrots. And that was, again, one of the reasons I chose a gray parrot for my study. There was a um, ethologist, Dietmar Tote, who was working as an assistant professor in the lab of Otto Kurler in Germany. And Kurler had basically told Dietmar that he was supposed to train these gray parrots to communicate with him in German. And Dietmar, having studied Nightingale's song, sort of looked at this as a very interesting challenge and thinking to himself, well, in the wild, how do these birds learn their songs? They learn by listening to the other birds singing to one another. So maybe if I can recreate something like this in the laboratory, this bird will learn German. So he set up this technique called model rival or MR technique, where two humans demonstrate to the bird the types of interactions they wanted to learn. One person is the model for the bird's behavior, and one person is the trainer. The model is also the rival for the trainer's attention. And Dietmar started by using just little phrases like, you know, what's your name? My name is Laura. And training the bird on that, that type of not terribly fancy, but just vocalizations to try to get the bird to speak. When I read this, I thought this was fascinating. And I took it one step further, which was to exchange roles of model rival and trainer so that one person was not always the questioner and the other person the respondent, so the bird would see that it was an interactive process. 
I also decided to use objects as the reward for the bird so that the whole point was to get the bird to request these objects that it wanted. So you would start out with something like a piece of wood that the bird really wanted to chew, and I would show it to a student, and I'd say, you know, what's this? And she'd say, wood, and I'd say, that's right. And I'd give her the wood, and she'd be tearing it up and going, wood, 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 and the bird's practically falling off the perch because <laughs> he, he wanted this thing. And then we exchanged roles of model rival and trainer. She asked me, and I would say would, and we'd go back and forth. And every once in a while, though, we'd make a mistake. So she'd show it to me and say, what's this? And I'd go, Arr. and she'd go, no, you're wrong. And this was important because that way the bird saw that not, you know, any weird new noise caused the transfer of the object, but only a particular sound. And we then, you know, at one point we'd give it to the bird. Now, for a bird like a parrot, to produce vocalizations, they have to learn how to control an enormous number of different muscles. They have to learn to control the syrinx, which is their sound source. They have to learn to control the length of the trachea, which can vary about 10%. They have to learn to control their larynx and their glottis, which opens and closes the glottal area. They have to learn to control, like us, their tongue that goes up and down and back and forth when they talk, and their beak opening. And if you think about it, think about how you say ah versus e and all the different things in your mouth that are happening then, they have to learn the same thing. And they also, for, for labels like puh, that paper with a puh in it, they have to learn how to actually use esophageal speech because without lips, the only way they can make those plosive sounds is by essentially burping them the way people who have a laryngectomy do. So there was no way this bird's going to say would initially, but it might go uh which is the sounds that are easy to produce, and we would reward that. And then over the course of weeks, we would get the w sound and the d and things like that. And so that's how we trained Alex to identify all the different objects and colors and shapes and numbers and things that we were training him on. I love that that technique um, positions the bird as the observer of the humans. And you've written that it one of the things that made it radical at the time was that it differed from um, the technique known as operant conditioning. Well, yeah. I mean, when I proposed this, my first grant proposal literally came back asking me what I was smoking. I mean, very literally, this was the <laughs> 70s. And um, the argument was, no, you're supposed to starve it down to 80% of its normal body weight, stick it in a Skinner box, and basically, you know, make it, you know, talk. And if it talks, if it says wood, it gets a piece of nut because, uh, you know, food is the most important reward. But that's no way to establish two-way communication. Communication is a social interactive situation. And you don't talk for food rewards if you're a normal person. You talk to get things to interact with people. So the idea was to use this referential reward, the piece of wood, so that the bird would get what it was asking for. And it would be motivated to talk to get what it wanted and to give it some control over its environment. So it was totally radically different. And, of course, there was no no partition between us. I mean, I was actually talking to this bird, and that was considered absolutely crazy. So you're working with Alex um, using the model rival method in this lab with graduate students. He's observing, you're observing him, and you've written that he started to um, surprise you in ways that um, involved uh, sometimes very surprised. Uh, sorry about that. Um, so you're working with Alex using the model rival technique, and you start getting some surprising results. 
Can you take us to a typical session in the lab and what started emerging from Alex? Well, a typical session, we would, you know, train him on a, let's say we're working with colors. And so the idea would be, okay, we want him to learn green. So we would use several different objects, like a green key and a green piece of paper. And we'd say, you know, we'd ask the student, what's here? And she'd say, paper. And I'd say, what color paper? And then she'd say, green paper. So that's how we started teaching him things like that. And the the idea was he he would learn it, and he did. But then the question was, did he really understand what green meant? So we had to give him transfer tests. So we'd pull out something new that he'd never seen before, that he could label the material but not the color, and you know say, well, showed him a green clothespin, and the term for a clothespin was pegwood. And we'd show it to him the first time he ever saw it, and he looks at it and he says, greenwood pegwood. And you're thinking, hmm. You know, he didn't actually say green pegwood, but boy, he went really close to that. The first time he ever sees it, he says greenwood pegwood. So he knows, in some sense, what we're trying to do. And that was the kind of thing that was just so exciting because he started doing that. I mean, much more exciting things were when he started making up his own labels. So we were trying to train him on apple, which he really liked, and we were modeling it. And, of course, there's that put in the middle, which was tough. And all of a sudden, he goes, Benary. And I'm going, what? And I'm thinking, Benary? So I call one of my colleagues who was a linguist. I was at Northwestern at this point. And she says, that's really exciting, lexical elision. And I said, huh? And she says, yeah, what are his other fruit labels? And I said, you know, cherry and banana. And he said, she said, see, he thinks it's, you know, like basically it tastes like a, you know, banana and it looks like a big cherry, Benary. I went, okay, you know, and so... For this to look, you know, it's binary. Um, the first time we showed him a uh, almond in the shell, he called it a cork. And if you think about an almond in the shell, it looks pretty cork-like. So we told him, well, how about cork nut? And it was like, okay, you know, and he just did it immediately. Um, we trained him on, you know, basically these different types of labels, and then he used them in these innovative ways. Um, he asked us what we were eating one afternoon. It was 5 o'clock, and we were hungry, and students and I you know, got into the, my leftover lunch, and we were chewing on some carrots. And this was a bird that hated vegetables. <laughs> but he's, you know, he's looking at us, what's that? What's that? And he's asking us, and we went, carrot. It's a carrot. And I didn't think anything of it. And the next morning, I get a call at 9 o'clock in the morning from one of my students, we're, a different student, where are the carrots? And I said, the what? And she said, carrots. He's saying carrot carrot. And I'm going like, okay, let me get some jeans and, you know, come in and bring some in. And he had figured out that that was the label by just asking us. And he learned the label orange by asking us the color of the carrot. He would play around with his label. So he looked and saw himself in a mirror and he asked the student, you know, what's that? And she said, well, that's you. You're a gray parrot, which wrecked any chance of mirror self-recognition studies. But it did mean that he learned the word gray, and then he played with it. And he would play with his lab- labels. So from gray, we went to grape, grain, chain, cane. And if we could match something with these labels that he was producing on his own, they would become embedded in the, in the vocabulary very quickly. So grape was easy. We you know, gave him the grapes that we had as, as fruit from grain. We gave him some parakeet seed later sunflower seeds for grain, chain, we made a chain of paper clips, 
cane. We got some sugar cane from the grocery store. Sometimes he came up with labels that didn't stay in the repertoire because we couldn't map anything he liked. So he came up with banacker, banana, <laughs> banana cracker, and we gave him dried banana chips, and he hated them, so that didn't stay in the, in the, in the repertoire. But it was really fascinating how he began to use his communication skills to enrich his environment and to get some control over his environment. And in, in addition to learning so much from the direct work you and your students are doing with him, you write in, in your memoir and um, in, in your articles about how Alex also picked up an enormous amount in the lab spontaneously, um, phrases like, I'm sorry, and come back. And you, you tell in, in your memoir a really hilarious story, of which there are many with Alex, about what happened when a BBC crew, I believe it was, came to visit the lab to see what Alex could do. I wonder if you could you could tell that story or tell some about what Alex learned spontaneously. Yeah, well, this was really fun. So it was um, BBC was doing a radio interview, and they had me, you know, asking him some questions. And then they, you know, basically wanted me to show, to do some of this work. And I'm going like, you know, this is radio, and they can't, you can't see what I'm showing him. And they said that's okay. You just, you know, tell us what it is, and then go into the lab, and then ask it to him. So I said fine. So. Outside of the lab, I say, well, I'm giving him a, you know, wooden square. It's orange, and I'm going to ask him about the color. So you hear my footsteps, you know, go into the lab, and I go, Alex, what color? And he looks at it, and he goes, no, tell me what shape. Okay, Alex, it's a, you know, four-cornered. Now tell me what color. And he goes, what matter? And I'm going, Alex, it's wood. Now can you tell me what shape, what color? And he says, how many? And I'm going, well, there's one piece of wood here. Now, can you please tell me what color? And then he goes, you know, again, what shape? And I'm saying no. And I start walking out the door, and you hear my footsteps going out. And then there's this plaintive little fa voice, you know, saying, like, I'm sorry, orange. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a, a time, too, when you had written up an important grant um, back when it was you couldn't just print out as many copies as you wanted and you went out for lunch and you came back to the lab and you found that the edges were just ri ridden with bird pecks and you realized that Alex had been at it. And then he looked at you and again he, he said, I'm sorry, right? Right. Well, he had learned the word. Um, again, It was one of these kinds of things, different situation, but I had left him alone just to go to the washroom and I came back and he had somehow climbed off his cage and had fallen on the floor with my coffee cup, and the coffee cup had broken. And I come in, and there's this bird sitting amongst all these shards and kind of acting like a, you know, a parent does that you know, gets so upset with a child. You know, just, oh, my gosh, you know, what did you do? And, you know, and then I look at him, and I'm going, this is a bird. And you know, I, was so, I was so worried that he was hurt, and I was so freaked out. And finally, I pick him up. I go, like, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. You know? And he learned the I'm sorry in that situation, that it was a way of deflecting anger. And so he used it in that way. There was absolutely no contrition. I mean, he would go and do the same thing again almost immediately, but he knew it as a way of deflecting anger. And it was very useful because he'd say it in this pathetic little voice, I'm sorry. <laughs> and you've written about how um, thinking about the grant applications, too, that while you were teaching Alex this language, there was also starting to be a shift more broadly in the field of animal intelligence and animal language 
um, studies in general, both among animal behaviorists and linguists, um, towards not wanting to call language uh, animals communicating in a way like Alex language per se. And so you uh, witnessed this firsthand, and then felt like you write about in the book that you would need to shift your own language as well to continue to get um, grant support and so forth. And I should say then too that this was really. Um, while Alex is so celebrated now, you were really facing an uphill battle through a lot of this to continue to be able to do this work and get funding. And we're really sort of a singular force of vision for seeing what could be possible here when when really nobody else saw it around you at first. And then later on, it was celebrated. But but back to my back to the question being, um, how did you then, based on what, how the field was evolving around you, shift your own language about how you talked about Alex? Well, it was very clear. I mean, a lot of this came about with this this conference in New York, Clever Hans Phenomenon, and it was a very ugly conference. I've written about it. But what really came to, to clarity at that point was that we were calling these communication system language. And yes, there were elements that were language-like elements that these animals were using. But in no case, in none of these animals, could they have the kind of conversation that we're having today. I mean, it just wasn't the kind of the, the richness and the complexity of human language. But it was symbolic communication. They were using symbols. They were using them referentially. They were using them to increase their knowledge. It was definitely an important step towards language. But it became very clear that that it was unfair to everybody and everything involved to try to call something that was so much less rich with the term that was so, you know, involved so much richness. And so the idea was to switch to calling it symbolic communication and to emphasize the fact that it could be used as a tool to examine their cognitive abilities. And that's pretty much where I started emphasizing my work at that point. I didn't want to get involved in the, the big brouhaha about what is or was not language and how language like these animals' abilities were. It seemed to me that it was what Donald Griffin said, that this system was a, a window into their minds, and that was really its value. It's so interesting. It makes me think of um, an essay by John Berger called Why Look at Animals, where he talks about how symbolic communication um, and language in particular, which is kind of the more sophisticated form of that in the received wisdom, has always been the kind of Rubicon that humans were understood to have crossed, but not any other animal. And he, he talks about um, the irony that if we look back at the first recorded cave paintings, many of them are, they depict animals, deer, rhinoceros. So animals um, were present at the kind of inception of what later became our way of dividing ourselves from them. So it made me think, um, I think one of the most fascinating questions for me that the book raises is that what the difference is between communication and language and um, which one is kind of, if there is a distinction, which it seems that the Alex studies um, suggest that there may be, which one is more interesting to pursue scientifically? Oh, I think I don't think it's an either or. I think it's both fascinating. I think we get a feeling for the evolution of language by looking at what our, you know, non-human animal compatriots can do. We also don't know what they're doing in the wild. 
I mean, so much of our studies are, you know, essentially I, I tell my students it's kind of like a Martian coming down and playing two tapes outside a room like this. One says free beer, and we might say, oh, that sounds interesting, and kind of go out and investigate. And the other one says fire, when we go running out like maniacs. And, I mean, that's essentially the level of which our playback experiments, you know, they're a little bit more sophisticated than that. I should should be honest about it. We're learning a lot more, and they, they are much more sophisticated. But it's still not, you know, at the same level as, as trying to literally communicate in sentences and phrases and things like that. And we don't know. Different birds use different, just in the birds, different birds use different ways of communicating different intensities and different types of behaviors. So there's just, you know, some use repetitions. Some choose different songs to sing. Some choose, it's just very, very complicated. And we're trying to learn that. So it's, it's, it's very important to figure out what they're doing in the wild. In terms of symbolic communication, it suggests that there's some underlying cognitive architecture that can be used to establish two-way communication with them and that they couldn't learn are labels if there wasn't this architecture on which you could build this this symbolic communication system. So it's fascinating in all those types of, of different ways. I mean, our language is, you know, we, we talk about things that happened in the past. We talk about things that will happen in the future. We talk about imaginary things. We talk about all different types of things that are beyond the understanding of each other sometimes, okay? We don't know if those things exist with animal communication systems. Not that they don't. I mean, I'm not saying they don't because whenever somebody says, this is impossible, this can't happen, wait a couple of decades and somebody finds <laughs> out that it, that it does happen. But I'm saying is that our levels of understanding are limited, and we need to establish as much information and as much understanding as possible. And it's not an either-or. And that gets to the point, too, that, that you've made before, which is often what we know about animals and how we study them in some ways tells us much more about ourselves than about the animals or about, uh, about both how our own brains work and... Um, and the limits of our own knowledge in some ways. I'm curious, when you were, when you were doing this work, um, you really were, as, we, as we've mentioned earlier, you know, pushing up against an uphill battle, particularly at first when no one else was focused on this or necessarily saw the value in the early, early years. I'm curious, how did you keep going? It was always a struggle to get funding and, and, um, and to uh, go against sort of mainstream sentiment, the birds aren't bright. What, what kept you going against all those obstacles? It's, it's really interesting. I mean, looking back, I, you know, sometimes I wonder what did keep me going. Uh, I just was very stubborn. I just really believed in what I was doing. I felt that I, you know, I understood things at a level that I thought I had to communicate to other people so that they would understand them at the same way that I did. I felt that if people could understand these things, they would accept what I was doing, and that's what kept me going. There was also just the beauty of finding something out, and I think that's true of all scientists, no matter what their field is, that you make this discovery, and for this one small period of time, this is something in the universe that only you know, and it's really exciting, and you want to share that with the world, and that was that was part of it. Um, I mean, there were so many 
so many different things. I would I would give a seminar, and somebody would you know raise their hand and say, but but how do birds do this? They don't have any cerebral cortex. They don't have anything that looks like a cerebral cortex. And I'd say, well, you're the neuroscientist. Go find it. It's got to be there because <laughs> they couldn't do this otherwise. And of course, you know, Jarvis et al. were et al. were twenty other people. Uh, Nature Reviews Neuroscience 2005, there's this beautiful, beautiful paper showing that there are all these areas in the avian brain that function like a cortex. They function cortically, and that this area in the parrots and the corvids is relatively humongous compared to the rest of the brain. Just like the primate brain, the cortex in the primate brain is larger than that in other mammals. And there were all these parallels that are being you know, shown the fact that there are seven neural systems for communication skills in birds and in humans. I mean, all these parallels, the brains look differently, but they function similarly. It was really, really exciting. So you were at the same time kind of making these revolutionary discoveries for the field and developing a profound bond with your subject. And I'm curious what, I mean, what is that like when you're the source of these revelations is also a colleague and um, a being that you care deeply about. It was very hard because I had to always maintain a distance. I always had to treat Alex as a colleague. I always had to put aside any feelings I had because they couldn't color anything that I was doing. The, the most horrible thing would be to have somebody say that, oh, you know, you're just you know, seeing what you want to see because you really care about this bird. So the objectivity was the most important important aspect of this. And so I treated him like a colleague. And, you know, you care about your colleagues. I mean, you ask them how their weekend went, and you commiserate with them over things, and you, you know, are happy for them when things go well. But there's a distance. And I kept that until he passed. And that's that's when the, the that barrier just completely shattered. Um, but until then, you know, I had to keep this objectivity and this distance. When Alex passed away, there was an incredible international outpouring of um, letters and um, obituaries. He was the featured obituary in The Economist and The New York Times and in many other publications and people um, writing to you and telling you how the story of Alex had, had impacted them very profoundly. And I wonder, um, and, and you've written how this barrier that you just mentioned crumbled, because um, not only were you losing the, the bird that was the subject of your research and life's work, but also when your closest companion in many ways for the 30 previous years. I wonder, for viewers who haven't, haven't heard the story, if you could describe your last interactions with Alex and what your good, good night routine was with him and what happened the night before he passed away. Yeah, well, every, you know, every night we'd put him in a cage and very much like a little child, this was, you know, he didn't want to go in the cage. He didn't want the day to end. So there would be, you know, some of these things like want some water and all these kinds of, you know, delaying tactics. And finally, we developed this little routine, this good night routine. And it became a duet between us. So it would be, you know, Alex, I'm going to go eat dinner. You know, you be good, and I'll see you tomorrow. And he'd say, you be good, I love you. And we'd go back and forth with these variations on a theme. It wasn't always the same. Sometimes he said, you know, you be good. Sometimes I said, you be good. But it was this little routine, and he knew that was it. He had to go in a cage. It was bedtime. And the night before he passed, we had actually been doing a study on uh, whether he could sync to music. 
So there was a graduate student had come to Brandeis, that's where we were at the time, from Harvard, and we were playing him uh, different music with different beats to see if he could carry the beat, and he was. And of course, unlike the cockatoo that you've probably seen on YouTube that would really get into it, gray parrots are the little guys in the three-piece gray suits. <laughs> so, you know, he was just bobbing his head, but he was bobbing his head in time, and we just had a great you know, great session. We had recorded all of this, and we did our little good night routine, and, you know, I love you. I'll see you tomorrow. And I walked out the door, and, you know, the next morning I'm sitting at my desk having, I basically would eat breakfast at my desk, doing all the emails that were coming in from Europe and from Japan and answering things that had come in overnight. And I got this one email from my colleagues in Europe. They were really excited. We'd gotten a grant. And I was thinking, yes, you know, this is exciting. We're going to do some collaborative work. And I got up to get, you know, reward myself with a second cup of coffee. And I come back, and now there's an email. Then the title is Sad News. And it's from the people at Brandeis. I'm thinking, oh, because, you know, sometimes we got things like that if, you know, something happened and we were collecting, you know, money for a bouquet because somebody was in the hospital or, you know, whatever. So I wasn't too upset at first, and then I open it up, and of course it's telling me that there's a dead bird in the back left-hand corner of the lab, and I'm going like, oh, oh, and that was how I found out that I had lost Alex, and it it hadn't, it didn't even completely, you know, connect at that point. It just went into a state of shock, and um, by the time I got into lab, and I was trying to head off my lab manager, because I didn't want her to just walk into this. Um, by that time, somehow or other, it had gotten out. Um, I, I probably told one or two close friends who, you know, just basically let let the, the, the whole news come out. But by the time I got into lab, my phone, the lab phone was ringing off the hook. My lab manager's phone was ringing off the hook. My cell phone was ringing off the hook. Um, it was just, it was, you know, and at that point, I was in shock, and I just went into interview mode, which is sort of like I'm here now. I'm listening to your questions. I'm answering them. I'm just focusing on sitting in this chair and answering a question that's come to me. Um, the feelings didn't even come for a while because I didn't have time. I literally didn't have time. I was spending every minute of every day answering questions and doing interviews and not thinking for for several days. That was really, a, I think, incredible public service in itself in that you had to put your own grief aside to focus on spreading the story of Alex, which clearly based on, based on the articles and based on the hundreds or thousands of letters and notes you received, truly did do what you had set out to do with him from the start when no one, no one believed in it from the beginning, which was to shift and advance our understanding of science and what birds know, and also to shift public sentiment. Um, so it was, it, was a, it was a tragedy that he died, died prematurely, but his, the aftermath of his death, death certainly made clear what an extraordinary impact and success the two of you as a team had had together. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's even to this day, it's pretty pretty interesting. I mean, this year, I there was two two conferences that were devoted to one on avian intel, just avian intelligence, another one just on parrot intelligence, and I was a keynote in, in both of those. And you know, I kept ex trying to explain to these young students who were in their twenties that you know, forty years ago, 
this whole field did not exist. And, it, you know, they're looking at me like, oh, really? Okay. You know, it was, it was an amazing thing to be able to go to an entire conference, you know, just based on a field that didn't exist and that we were based, you know, that Alex was basically the reason why this field now exists. And, and your work in that field continues today, too, that you had um, you had a, a parakeet, Griffin, who you're still working with now, who was there when, when Alex was still alive as well. Yeah, gray parrot. Oh, okay, gray parrot. And he, he was one of the ones that Alex, who you refer to in the book as kind of a Napoleon-like figure in the lab, would, <laughs> would chastise here and there for getting on his nerves or for, for not being um, – Quite as quite as stellar as Alex might have been answering questions. Can you tell us about about what your work is now since Alex passed away? Well, Griffin is really really smart. I mean, there is no question. But he's he is the student who tells you know is like tell me what I have to do to get the A. Um, he doesn't he doesn't like to break out on his own. But he's done some amazing work. We he passed the marshmallow test. He waited fifteen minutes <laughs> for a better reward. I mean, think about that, 15 minutes. And the interesting thing was he would do exactly what the children would do while waiting. He would sit there. He would try to fall asleep. He would talk to himself. He would preen. He would do all, you know, just all these delaying tactics in order to get the better reward. I mean, we've done studies on Piagetian uh, conservation, liquid conservation. And he's one of other three other birds that did this, where this is a study with um, you, you show a child two glasses, they're half full, and you ask the child, which one do you want? And they, they laugh and they joke, it doesn't matter. And then you pour the glasses into a tall, thin glass and a short, fat glass. And now you ask the child, which one do they want? And if the child is under five years old or under, they'll generally point to the tall, thin one. They said that one. You go, why? And they say, because there's more. And you say, but you just told me they were equal. And the child says, no, now there's more. They don't understand conservation until they're six years old. When they're about six years old, they might point to the tall, thin one, and you ask them why, and they say, well, it's more fun to drink out of, or it looks like an adult glass. They'll say something. We did a study on Piagetian probability. Again, Piaget did this with young children. He took a bucket, and he put three red things in and one blue thing in, put them in, mixed them up, and took one thing out, and then asked the child what color. And the child, until they're about five or six years old, will say, well, you know, blue because it's my favorite. Or will you put one blue thing in so it has to be the blue one? I mean, there's some kind of logic there, but they don't get it. And only when they're about six years old will they say, well, red because it's the mostest. So we did this with Griffin, and we used lots of different sets of objects. And sometimes there was, you know, like three corks and one key, and sometimes there was three keys and one cork, so he couldn't just learn how to say cork or key. And we... Of course, we only had one talking parrot at this point, so we had to give him 96 trials for statistical significance. And he matched the probability, 73-23. So he guessed appropriately. I mean, you know, this is a parrot. We've just finished a study on exclusion, on inference by exclusion, where the idea is you figure out where something is by giving information about where it's not. And it's a pretty complicated type of test, but let's just say that he beat out five-year-old children, and he also um, basically did better than the apes were likely to have done on the task, given what we know about what apes have done on other similar tasks. So, I mean, you know, 
were doing studies on Piaget in overconservation. He also succeeded on that. We did a study on visual working memory manipulation, which is a shell, the sort of a shell game on steroids. You take four different colored pom-poms and you put them on a tray. You cover them with little black cups, and then you move them around. And when you finally finish moving, then you say, well, where's the yellow one? So you have to keep track of all four of them at once. On almost all the tasks, he beat out ch- children. He beat On all the tasks, he beat children out up to children that were eight years old. He beat them out. He did better than most humans on all but the most complicated tasks. And on the most complicated ones, things like four colors and four swaps, he was as good as the worst human. So, I mean, there's all this kind of incredible intelligent stuff that he's he's doing. He's not getting a whole lot of credit for it um, compared to Alex. I mean, Alex did anything, and it was, you know, top news all over the place. Um, maybe it's because people just accept that birds are smart now, and, you know, it's like, okay, so he's done something else that's cool, fine. But um, we've still continued to do a lot of really interesting studies with him, and now we're starting some things with Athena, and she's she did the conservation study, too. And she's a five-year-old female. She, yeah, she's African a five-year-old gray. female, and Griffin's now 23 years old. So in addition to all the science that you're doing, you've also been very engaged with um, trying to protect the areas in which grays live in the wild, which um, are threatened by habitat destruction and warfare and poaching. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I mean, we started in the 1990s. I had students out in Africa trying to do field work there. They were they were trying to document all the poaching that was going on, all the habitat destruction. We couldn't get anybody to pay attention. The attitude was, oh, there are tons and tons of these birds out there. Who cares? And, you know, there wasn't much we could do. My, my students were chased by machete-wielding poachers, which is why we stopped the field work. Um, at that point, I basically tried to just convince people that these how intelligent these birds were because people like to conserve what they consider like themselves and intelligent. More recently, I've been working with a, another group. Um, the fellow in charge is Gregory Lamort. He's out of New York, and he's trying to establish a reserve in Ghana for these grays. And I've been working very closely with him. He's trying to right now raise money to set up an avi- a special aviary for these birds because a lot of the birds that have been poached and that have actually um, the poachers have been stopped and the birds have been confiscated, they're warehoused in zoos right now until people can figure out how to release them. And zoos the zoos can't handle them. They're these large numbers of birds. So he's he's trying to raise money for an aviary to at least how these birds in a you know big flight aviary until they can be released. And he's trying to f- buy land and, and purchase areas so that they can make a reserve so these birds can be released. So that's one of the things that we're doing most recently. And that, that's work that's being done through the Alex Foundation, which is that, is and, that And it's his own foundation, too. Great. Okay. Yeah, the African Grey Foundation, yeah. Great. And then you're, you're also through the Alex Foundation, you um, and, and on your own, you give talks often to groups about the importance of responsible parrot ownership and that these are birds that Alex lived to be 31, but that can live to be 50, 60, 70 years old. And um, 
and 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 you're you're great at describing them. So I'll let I'll let you do that. But that they're currently, according to a 2013 study, 20.6 million pet birds, not not necessarily parrots, but but very intelligent birds, um, in captivity. Right. And I mean, I try to first of all, I try to convince people that parrot ownership is not for everyone. I mean, I give a talk and somebody comes up to me and said, oh, I want a bird just like Alex. And I say, well, what's your life like? And they say, well, I work eight hours a day and I have a two-hour commute and I have three kids and I'm taking them to all their different activities. And I say, uh, get a you know paper mache bird and just hang it up in your living room. And, you know, that, that's all <laughs> you need. Sounds like good advice. Yeah. And then somebody comes to me and says, well, I'm a web designer and I work at home all the time and I don't take many vacations. And, you know, I say, you know, this could work, you know, because you're home enough and, you know, you're, you're going to be able to interact with your bird and take care of it. And, and, I mean, these are flock animals. In the wild, a single bird is a dead bird. It can't look for food and forage and look for predators at the same time. There's always one bird. They trade off, but there's always one bird out there as a sentinel looking to see about predators while the others forage. So they're always in flocks. They're at minimum about four or five birds traveling together you know, looking for, for different things. They get together in big groups at different times during the day in a fission-fusion type interaction. But, I mean, they're flock animals. In Europe, they insist that you buy two birds at once. And I'm not sure how great that is because I tell people, well, you know, how close are you to your freshman college roommate who was picked for you? <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe this is not such a good idea. Um, but, you know, I try to make people understand these are creatures with the intelligence of at least a six-year-old child. They have the personality of a two-year-old in its, you know, no stage, very strongly. They want what they want what they want it. They have a Swiss Army knife attached to their, you know, face that they use to destroy anything that they get their beak on because they don't know the difference between their chew toy and, you know, Aunt Sophie's antique armoire. <laughs> and they can shriek at the level that, you know, would pierce your eardrums if they want to. So, you know, they don't make good pets for everybody. For some people, they do. And I'm not saying that one should never have a pet. But you have to understand. You have to give them this kind of enriched environment. I mean, in the wild, they forage 60 kilometers a day. They're spending their time with other birds. They're interacting. There's fission fusion groups, as I was mentioning. They have dominance hierarchies. They understand that, you know, Sam beat up on Joe and Joe beat up on me, and I don't want to go near Sam. But I can be friends with Billy and maybe Bobby, and we can have our little group. And, and they have this kind of complex life. And you put them in a cage... And you give them a couple of chew toys for eight hours a day. I mean, it's like putting a, a four-year-old in a playpen with a few toys for eight hours. And, you know, nobody would do that to a child. So you have to think about these things. And I try to get people to understand that if they want these birds as pets, it's an incredible commitment for time and effort and energy. And as you mentioned, they live a long time. So I try to convince people who are 70 years old that no, this is not a good pet for your retirement unless you have children who really want a parrot you know, after you pass. One of my colleagues in the Netherlands has a bird that's documented at 99 and all the different family members that have had this bird throughout its life. Um, because, you know, it bird isn't in great shape at 99, but it still eats and it still, you know, sleeps and it still interacts a bit. Um, so, you know, you, you really have to think about this. And it's, it's really important because otherwise these birds end up in sanctuaries and the sanctuaries do absolutely the best they can. But they're overwhelmed with people who think they want a bird. And then they realize what caring for a bird entails. And then they get rid of it. And I mean, that's, that's just 
absolutely horrible. Mm. Well, to close, we like to ask our guests for books or films that have impacted your thinking, influenced how you think about humans and other animals, and the divide more generally. So we're curious if there are a couple of books or films that have impacted you that you'd recommend. Well, as a child, of course, the Dr. Doolittle books because he talked to the animals. I mean, that was, you know, and, and Polynesia was his gray parrot. So, I mean, that, that certainly certainly affected me. Uh, Conrad Lorenz's book, you know, um, trying to Is remember. Is that King Solomon's Ring? Yes, yes. Mm. That's, that was, you know, that was an amazing book because, again, it was, you know, talking to the general public about the science behind these, these types of things. Um, I read, I read, you know, anything that had to do with animals. I read as a child, so you know, all the all the animal books. You can can put them down down to that, um, and a lot of Donald Griffin's books. They're just again, his books were coming out just when I was starting the question of animal awareness, on nineteen seventy six, when people you know were calling him the Simon Rushdie. Of, mm. of, you know, the field because they, they felt that he was a traitor to the field and he was being so anthropomorphic. And, you know, where's the hard scientists that we knew? And yet he opened up this whole world to a lot of people to make them understand the intelligence of these animals. And as I said before, using communication as a, a window into their minds. So that, that's, that's a quite, a, quite a number right there. Well, Dr. Pepperberg, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm so pleased to have been here. Thank you, Dr. Pepperberg, and thank you, too, to our great producer, Ryan McAvoy, and the Yale Broadcast Studio and the Yale Human Nature Lab for making this episode possible. For photos of Alex and more information on Dr. Pepperberg's groundbreaking work, including her work that continues today with Griffin and other parrots, check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, for links and more information. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals and write us a review on Yale University's page on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.